Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'll be speaking to Alice Draper. Alice is a freelance writer and editor currently based in Nottingham Road, KwaZulu-Natal. She finished studying a Bachelor of Journalism at Rhodes University in 2019 and now has had the fun job of trying to cultivate a career during a global pandemic. Right now, most of her time is spent on copywriting work with a few editing projects. She's also trying to invest more of her energy into writing for publication. Alice has always been a feminist. Her early primary school creative writing pieces reimagined fairy tales where the princess chooses to save herself without having an arguably toxic prince in the picture. Alice's writing can also be found in a few places like Hello Giggles, The Tempest, Ground Up, The Daily Maverick and elsewhere. Today we'll be talking about the piece she wrote for Living While Feminist called Shaving. It's about body hair and deciding what to do with it, and in that piece she says, Reflecting has made me wonder how much of the decision to remove body hair was mine. I thought I was making an active choice, and at a physical level, I was. My realm of information, consisting of the media, friends, teachers and strangers, all told me I should remove my body hair. This wasn't something to talk about and contest, it just was. But as I got older, my thoughts about the practice started to shift. One day, I hope to have enough self-esteem to love my body as it is, hairy and all. So today we'll talk about the male gaze, what it means to defy it, body hair, and the many steps on a feminist journey. Welcome, Alice. Thank you, Jen, and thank you for the introduction. (laughs) It's a pleasure. But let's start with your piece in in Living While Feminist, where you wrote about um, a time when you and your friend were 12 years old and you went and got your legs waxed for the first time after school one day without talking to your mother about it first. And you describe her fetching you from school and you say, my mother's face hardened as her eyes assessed my hairless legs. Her disapproving comments annoyed me immensely. All the girls in my school were starting to shave. Why should I be any different? So why did you decide to write about shaving and the body as the topic of your piece for this feminist essay collection? Yeah, um, so when I wrote the piece, um, it was at a time when I was thinking about body hair a lot. (laughs) And, um, you know, so much of that sort of, it's something that I think so many of us don't think about. Um, I think, you know, it's generally quite accepted by society at large that women, um, particularly in Western societies, will shave or remove their body hair. And what really sparked me to think about it was a conversation I had with a university friend who told me how like horrified she was to hear about people shaving their pubic areas. And I was like, really? <laughs> That's not something I've, you know, it, it, the opposite, in fact, was that, you know, everyone did it and it wasn't even something you, we spoke about. It was just something you did. Um, so that got me thinking. And then um, I was studying politics at the time. This was in 2018. And we had to do like a sort of explore an academic topic that had a personal angle. And so I was brainstorming what to work on for that politics assignment. 
And then I was thinking about body hair and I was like, well, now I have this question, which is, um, did I, did I really choose to do it or not? You know, how much of it was influenced by other factors? And then that's kind of why I explored it. Um, I wrote this academic essay with, which was called an autoethnography. It was like a mixture of personal and academic. Then I shared it. I shared the piece with two people. I shared it with my best friend and my mom. And they both were like, this is amazing. Um, <laughs> it should be, you should do something with it. And so then I turned it into a, a largely just a personal essay. Um, mine is saying like the 2000 words of academic theory. But it's so interesting that it was an academic piece first. And I wonder about those 2000 words of academic theory and what sort of topics you grappled with when you were writing that autoethnography. Was it as simple as, yes, there's a right way to do things in a feminist way or no, it's much more complicated and choice is important? I mean, it was definitely not simple, you know, um, mm. my what I kind of concluded at the end was um, people who there's very little literature on it um and I think there was Australian literature that I found the most useful and it was about people who defied the hairless norm and the kind of general conclusion I came up with was it requires a lot of confidence to do that and um the people who did it were like very devoted feminists um they um were very much doing it for a political reason. It wasn't just like, I don't feel like shaving. And um, a lot of them kind of didn't enjoy it. Um, some of them stayed committed to it. Um, yeah, so I kind of, in the same, similar way to how I concluded the personal essay, I concluded it by saying, you know, it requires a lot of confidence. Um, but by the more people who sort of have that confidence and do it, the more normalized it will become. And we kind of got that a bit with celebrities like Miley Cyrus, I think, like showing her armpit hair. But it's also often like so like, oh my God, you know, like can you believe celebrity like went out and showed the armpit hair to the world? Like, God forbid. When when I was sort of in probably in high school, it was Julia Roberts who there were photos of her with armpit hair. Yeah. And I literally remember reading them in a magazine where there were circles around it as if as if this was some political act. And I think that's something that you touch on is that when you're making this decision, it once the decision has happened, so once you've already started removing your body hair, whether it's on your face or your legs or your armpits or your yeah. genitals or whatever region that you've decided to remove your hair, then choosing not to do it suddenly becomes political. And I wonder if it would be the same for women who have never tried to remove their body hair, who have always just left it as it is, whether it would also be political. That's a really interesting thing to think about. You know, um, I often think, so like another part of the struggle with me and accepting my own body hair is that I have very dark hair. You know, the hair on my head is basically black. And mm. so... As a result, like the hair everywhere else is very dark and thick and like it's noticeable. And so I would sometimes see people be like, oh, I'm embracing my body hair, but they have like super thin blonde hair that's like practically invisible. And it's like awesome, but it's I feel like it's not the same if you your hair is not that noticeable. And so I would also wonder if I never engaged in removing my body hair, would it be different? Would it be like sort of you know when I started shaving I had like very baby hairs I don't know maybe maybe as I like went through puberty it would have become like a lot more noticeable 
in the piece you talk about your mother who you describe as an orthodox feminist which I loved and you describe her very much with affection and you give you say in the piece my mother an orthodox feminist disapproved of most feminine beauty practices like makeup hair straighteners and body hair removal in contrast I obsessed over my physical appearance I wanted long and straight hair fancy makeup and a hairless body the day I got my legs waxed felt empowering I was claiming agency as a woman and I found my mother's stance on body hair radical and strange and I love this piece because you're talking about a mom who's got feminist principles and I think a lot of people who are feminists think they'll raise kids and their kids will be feminist and it's all going to be fine and one day we'll all be more liberated (laughs) but as you raise in your piece there's so many outside influences that affect the success of the transference of these feminist ideals which have to be defended so can you talk a little bit about what it was like to have these discussions with your mum and the two opposing forces then of the real world pressures and your orthodox feminist mother yeah um so I guess growing up like it's it's hard to even like pinpoint how I mean I never really felt like I had to like come to terms with anything to identify with as a feminist I just felt like I was one um but at the same time I rejected so many of my mom's principles and that's why I used the term orthodox feminist because I think feminism in my generation has changed so much and that like I um Back then, it was almost like you had to reject what was considered feminine in order to be, like, feminist, whereas I think now it's there's a lot more freedom and choice, you know. If you want to do your makeup and, like, straighten your hair, you shouldn't be looked down upon by feminists because it is, it is ultimately a choice, even though factors like um, the media and stuff can play into that choice. I guess just about being less judgmental to feminists. (laughs) Feminists shouldn't judge other feminists or other women. I was talking about the the opposing world of the the opposing forces of the real world and your mum. And so, Um, you know, in choosing to to wax, you felt like you you were making a decision about your own body, which for many of us feels empowering when you choose to do something with your own body. But I think what you're touching on in, in your response there is around choice and um, the conditions in the cho- of the choices that we make and in a patriarchal society how many of those choices are constrained by really powerful norms that say one of these choices is a better choice if you want to be a good woman yeah and I guess having a feminist mother made me think that shaving was me making like a very taking agency and making an empowering choice And I guess it would have been totally different if I didn't have a feminist mother, if I had someone who handed me a shaver, a razor at 12 and said, here, you are getting older now, it's time to shave. And then society is telling me to shave. Then perhaps I would have looked at it totally differently. But at 12 years old, I was like, this is awesome. I'm defying my mom. (laughs) I'm doing this for myself. And then, like you mentioned earlier, as um, once I ascribed to the practice, I then to to no longer ascribe to it made me feel like I was um made me feel like I I didn't have a choice or like I was being political so it became um and this is what I mentioned in the essay it, it was initially an empowering choice but then once I started the practice I no longer felt like I had a choice and that all comes down to all the different factors that tell women they should be hairless and um I guess 
how made me reflect on how much of it was really my choice in the beginning, even though I totally felt like it was at the time. Mm. I mean, in your story, you describe some of the ways that women are really policed for their body hair and of a particular case of someone you knew who was made fun of and shamed and exposed in a really terrible way for their body hair. Um, but that then when you got to university, you encountered a difficult, a different analysis of, of what the decision was about. Um, and then you also touch on a really important thing, which is the expense of maintaining this beauty regime, the costs for men and women of the same hair removal product. So I had a look just quickly now on the cost of a razor. So the exact same brand, the exact same number of blades and fanciness for a woman's razor, for the Chic Hydro skin, Silk Razor, is 155 rand. For the men's razor, which is the same Chic Hydro Razor, is 133 rand. They are the same thing. They do the same thing, and yet we charge more. So even when it, even when if you are a person who loves shaving and it's a choice that you've made and it makes you feel more comfortable in your body, you are paying more. There is a pink tax involved in being a woman doing this hair removal process so do you think it was the feminism that made you rethink it or do you think that the expense of this started to make you think hey this is getting a bit out of hand for me I think it was the feminism um because I am like privileged enough to be able to afford to maintain the practice um it and I mean definitely it became a hassle you know and that was the cost but also the time involved um like <laughs> I I like would get sick of shaving because my hairs would go back so quickly so then I would like wax or um like consider like laser hair removal which I never did but it's something I like considered and that I mean laser hair is an incredibly expensive practice and um I mean, waxing is so time consuming <laughs> and then my hairs would be ingrown. So there was so many like sort of little factors that added together that was like, this is an incredible amount of time I'm spending on like maintaining <laughs> my hair, hairless body. And um, I do think that the cost is, um, that's crazy. I mean, I think so much of the norm stems from exactly that, which is, like razor companies or once they removed hair removal creams or once I mean once they invented hair removal creams or like wax promoting it through the media and um, we often don't realize how how much the media conditions us to think that something is normal or should be done and it largely comes down to capitalism and selling products um, and yeah so if you look into the history of hair removal it kind of goes back to when they first started selling razors or other hair removal products. And that's when it started becoming mainstream. Yeah, I mean, capitalism and feminism have a very uneasy balancing act because in some ways, capitalism does give you choice. But in other ways, capitalism reinforces people's sense that there's something wrong with your body in the first place. And that's why you have to buy something to make yourself fit in or feel better. Um, and. Yeah. And you end your piece, I think, you know, with saying that one day you hope to have enough self-esteem to love your body as it is, hairy and all, which capitalism makes really hard because say you decide to accept your body hair, now there will probably be a sense of which types of hair is the right hair to have. You know, even if you decide to grow out your pubic hair, for example, I'm not saying you in particular, but if anyone decides they, they've been waxing or removing their pubic hair, now they want to grow it back. Now there's a discussion of what styles, how much hair, what patterns. 
Um, So I'm wondering, I guess, how your journey to this self-love and self-esteem is going and what are some of the barriers that you face in your day-to-day life to living with body hair? It's going, it's not going smoothly. It's not like a straight road, but it's moving along bubbly. Like, (laughs) Um, and I think um, one of the big barriers is something I I mentioned is that um, a friend like really put this so well like an old friend who read my piece and then reached out to me and she said um she like really um empathized with what I wrote and that um she sometimes like no matter whether or not she shaves she feels like it's a political decision so like by shaving it's like oh I'm being so like (laughs) anti-feminist and then by not shaving it's like oh now I'm making a statement with my body here and I guess that's something that I struggle with and that, like, I don't want it to mean anything. I just want to do what I want with my hair and it's to just be, like, you know, like, if I <laughs> decide to wear a pink shirt today or a blue shirt, no one's going to be like, ooh, I mean, I don't think they would. <laughs> like, ooh, she's being super girly today or like super tomboyish or she's just wearing a t-shirt because that's the t-shirt that she saw and decided to wear today um so yeah I guess the something I still struggle with is like unpoliticizing it and I don't think Mm. that's me I think that's the way people respond to it um Mm. and and then not wanting to make a statement you know and I think I said um I wrote this piece a while ago because I was like had these conflicting thoughts about what to do with body hair and that's still the same now and so I guess yeah like if I don't shave I don't want to walk into a room and everyone be like oh look at her she is making a feminist statements um and yeah I don't know so one day maybe I will be happy to like have everyone look at me and be like oh she looked at her she's making a big feminist statement <laughs> yeah. I suppose there's there's that um comfort that comes with a sort of invisibility so if you are shaving and conforming to body norms or societally accepted body norms then you are both rewarded in that people don't judge and stare but you're also able to be a little bit more invisible sometimes because you are just doing what everyone expects you to be doing so for example I went back to my high school this year and did a writing in residence week which was focused on feminism which was just amazing experience to see how um, young women are just so much more ahead of where I was at that time in my life but I Mm. had decided because I had a whole section on shaving which was using your piece and another piece in the book And I had decided not to shave my legs for that week to see whether there was any engagement from these young women. And they were just totally fine with it. And one of them was was very powerful in her response to me saying, you know, she likes removing her body hair. It makes her feel more comfortable in her own body. And even if it became out of fashion, she would continue to do it. And others were a little bit more reflective and said, you know, they're not sure. They'd never really thought about it. And then you could see once I had said I had grown my leg hair, there was sudden a sudden interest, and I felt quite weird the whole week with this with my hairy legs, <laughs> thinking about it. Um, but then other times when you're just not thinking about it, and and it isn't a decision that you've made, maybe you've just been busy and you haven't gotten around to it. It does feel mm-hmm. less political. So I wonder how much of this feeling of making a statement is, you know, self created, um, rather than something that would actually happen. 
Uh, my mom, um, the Orthodox feminist, she told me she um, spent some time doing like um, agricultural studies or something in California when she was in her 20s or 30s, I'm not sure. And it was all women and they spent like six months in like the countryside and none of them shaved. And she said like it was oh, someone new arrived and they like had shaved legs. And they all looked at her and like, you look so strange. Like your legs look so naked. And I mean, obviously in that environment, they, it had been so normalized to have hair, hairy, like it became a normal thing. It looked, it looked strange in the opposite lights. Um, but yeah, I don't know like um, uh, whether or not, I think a lot of it is in my head. And a lot of it is like kind of what you touched on in that, that sort of invisibility I also think that um it's easy to kind of um do things conforming often like heightens um the um positive way certain people receive you you know um and it's it's almost like a privilege so like like different privileges accumulate so like if I am white that gives me so much privilege in certain respects but if I like publicly identify as like a radical feminist then in certain environments people may not be as open to to me as if they thought I was like a nice conforming girl <laughs> um yeah. but yeah that's an interesting point but it's so interesting to think about as well because you are a freelance writer I see you mostly working from home especially now in COVID and mm. and so there is the sense of like the office and the people that you are performing for I mean, like, I can't tell what you're wearing right now because we're talking on Zen Carter, but I'm sitting here in shorts and a T-shirt. <laughs> if I was going to, you know, work in a government space, for example, I wouldn't be dressing this way because there's some sort of, oh, yeah. uh, you know, there's something going on about how to perform in the right way. I think that applies to so many aspects of our life. Yeah, I mean, it's not just hair, right? It's every, It's the way that we perform our gender every day yeah. and I think recognizing that it is a performance is a helpful first step to yeah. thinking about what what types of performance are actually helpful to you and are benefiting you and are not just simply for everybody else's comfort and convenience yeah and what performances you make you happy you know like I mm. find working from home sometimes if I wear like a nice dress and like I don't know like even like put lipstick sometimes and I mean no one's saying that except for me um but yeah then there's also and I mean it's so hard to kind of stop conforming for other people or like putting on these performances for other people because you know if you have like a corporate job and then you arrive and you're like hippie pants and like I don't know <laughs> people probably wouldn't respond very positively to you or maybe they would I don't know <laughs> I haven't had a corporate job before <laughs> yeah. and so tell me then about this non-corporate writing job and lifestyle that you live and what writing means in your life mm. um so I mean I do some corporate writing for copy arts and businesses um but I work from home so I don't know if you meet maybe like video call I'll wear a nice t-shirt <laughs> um but yeah writing has been something that I've always um has always been there for me even though obviously I only learned to write when I was like six or seven um I grew up in a house full of books um and my parents were both academics and always read stories to me and stories were always such a 
big part of my identity in my life um and I don't ever remember not wanting to be a writer and I know a lot of writers say this is like quite an amazing thing to have um and writing helps me make sense of the world around me um going into you know like this I think often like good pieces come out from a question so um like when I went into this piece that I wrote I'd, I had a question which was like do I want to shave or not <laughs> and um that's always so nice and that like I don't think by verbally talking something through I can make sense of things as much as I can by writing them through writing about them researching them um yeah so so writing is like I'd say like a very big part of my identity I don't know who I'd be without writing um and um Hopefully I will do more writing as time goes on. I mean, I would love to write a novel at some point. Um, at the moment, I'm doing a lot of corporate stuff and um, some editing work and then occasionally some journalism stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you, you mentioned how difficult it has been to find work during the COVID period, which is something that I relate to as a fellow freelancer. And mm. I wonder if you've considered writing about this, you know this finding work process or the COVID time from a feminist lens or whether anything's come up during this period that you think requires more feminist attention Mm, that's a good question um I think like journalism has been such a bad way through um COVID and that's also why I'm kind of leaning more towards corporate writing at the moment and um in terms of exploring it from a feminist lens I guess I guess it just sucks how like the kind of writing who that I think is so important is the kind like the first to sort of lose funding in times of like economic hardship like publications shutting their budgets or um you know NGOs are suffering and um I guess looking at like a sort of awful way that like capitalism has structured the system and that these are the first and just I mean already often struggling generally struggling pre-pandemic but like how this pandemic has only heightened that and and the need that we have for this feminist work to go out I mean we need people to constantly be exploring every kind of social issue from a feminist angle I think and if you're not being rewarded monetarily for that it makes it harder because obviously not everyone can work for free it's um, not an easy thing to do especially if you don't have other sources of income. Yeah and I think the assumption that uh, there's sort of work that can be done for free or should be done for free is problematic and I think many uh, young women starting out especially find it hard to ask for the money that is what they need and that is you know to get paid for their worth and the work that they do is a very difficult thing when you've been told that the work that women tend to do is care work which doesn't actually get remunerated so you know your work isn't as valuable yeah I think it's so like oh and so many places, you know, say that, like, they're just going to mm. have, like, an intern who will work for free. And, um, 
you know, I think my, my thoughts on working for free is if you really want to, then that's okay for you if you, if you can afford to and if the work's meaningful to you. But I don't think as a model it should be something that industries should be promoting um, because, yeah, again, like it's often it's often stuff that's like important work and meaningful work like feminist writing where I've found in my experience is where people want you to work for free. And I'm like obviously that goes against <laughs> feminism, I think, because um, I know that the places don't have a lot of money, but still at the same time, um, it, time is money and that, that time that they're spent working for free could be spent earning money. Yeah, I think that you, you're so right because often the very important work in society is done and, and undervalued, which we've seen in COVID in the way that essential workers are some of the lowest paid workers in yeah. society. And so I think, you know, it's important to encourage analysis of this from a feminist perspective without then reinforcing that same pattern of economic reward for some types of work and not for others. Writing is important work. I think we often see when in times of austerity that the arts and creative um, sectors mm -hmm. are the first to get hurt. But those are the, the, the writers of the world are the ones who are keeping us in check with ourselves. They're like the finger on the pulse. So yeah. it's really important that we reward them for that work. Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, in these months of lockdown, everyone's been like depending heavily on the arts and creative work. I can't imagine how people cope otherwise. And yeah, it's like the sort of tech jobs and stuff. People get to work from home and still carry to have a secure stable career and the people who have had to actually go to work every day throughout the pandemic are often earning like super exploitative wages globally and I mean especially here in South Africa yeah I don't know I guess that comes down to the whole capitalist system because it's such a catch-22 you know if I decided to start a feminist company how would I um, stick to my feminist principles of paying someone well if no one is going to pay the company for work, feminist work, if that is not valued by society? Um, so it's a really hard one, I think, to to tackle. Like, yeah, it's something that people often only think about it when they have to come up against it. So I know many of my female friends and who signed up to work at a company didn't ever look at their maternity leave policy and then suddenly when it came time that they wanted to have a child were shocked to find that they were going to be expected to work you know to have very little leave or either not to get paid at all for that time off that they needed which is important societal yeah. labor of raising children so I think that's I suppose one thing that we can take from this time is recognizing that certain policies and processes disadvantage people and to when you sign up at a company to ask those hard questions right in the interview period or in the signing mm. on stage so that you don't get surprised later yeah I mean that's like <laughs> I can't even imagine I mean you especially also if you're having a child you kind of rely on that money to come in because obviously now there's another person entering a family and so now if you have to take unpaid leave um or carry on working you it's neither are in any way like a, a viable or ideal option 
No, I mean, it's really amazing though this week or last week I saw that Vodacom has decided to give equal paid paternity leave and maternity leave, which for me is such an important feminist solution. It encourages fathers to play an active role in their child's life right from the beginning and it recognizes that the work that is required to raise a child is something that takes two people and that is valuable um, yeah. and that requires rest. Not only, you know, it's, I think it's one thing that people often say, you know, maternity leave is like some sort of holiday, <laughs> which is just mad. <laughs> like it's the most exhausting time of people's lives. You really need that money to be coming in so that you can rest and recover. Yeah, I saw you shared that. And I think it's amazing. I mean, mm. I haven't heard of a South African company doing that. I think in like Norway or something, I've heard of it happening, but that's amazing. It was starting to happen here in South Africa. Yeah, it's inspiring. Hopeful for the future. <laughs> Yeah. So just a last few questions at the end of the podcast, which I'm asking everybody. And the first relates to reading. You say you grew up in a household full of books. Do you have a book that has inspired your feminism? Um, I, I, hmm. It's hard to pinpoint just one book, um, but I think someone who really inspired my feminist thinking growing up was Judy Bloom, because, I mean... I don't necessarily know if she would identify as like putting her books into a feminist theme, but um, I I grew up reading. I remember picking up her first book from my school library in like grade three or four, and it was Blubber. And then after that, I read all her like children's books, young adult books, adult books, and she kind of almost like raised me through childhood and the like things that I never spoke about I was a very shy child and um, things that I never heard being spoken about which was all the kind of awkwardness about it like the awkwardness of going through puberty and like wondering when your period's gonna come or like the awkwardness of being a child and I mean like dealing with so many themes like divorce um, and it kind of instilled thinking in me that um girls and women should be allowed to be vulnerable and open about things and like I may not have like um applied this into my life but like the thinking was always there and I think it was so key to like my feminist identity as an adult um what the influence had on me as a child and then I also keep raving about all about love by bell hooks um and yeah she the book's essentially about loving but she talks about everything that gets in the way like passive acceptance of lies and our personal and like our public lives um and then struggles with self-esteem and self-acceptance that often stem at being shamed that gets in the way of our authentic selves and without really truly accepting ourselves it's really hard to enter like any kind of love whether that's friendship um or family or partners I think for many people listening, they will find it very easy to be unconditional in their love for other people in their lives, whether it's their friends or partners or family, but find it much harder to be unconditional with themselves in the way that they love their bodies or the, their life choices or who they are. So I think that's a really nice recommendation for anyone who's feeling a bit down on themselves to encourage them to yeah, start self-love first. And also, it's more than just self-love, but also once you have that down, you can sort of show those parts of yourself to other people, and it creates a much more, like, um, deeper love, I think, between other people. If you 
are open about yourself you know I think like having that shame often means hiding parts of ourselves that we um deem as like un, um, unworthy or unlovable and that can almost hold us back from like the potential that other relationships have I don't know if that makes sense <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think shame tries to situate ourselves as the problem, which mm. doesn't really allow us us any room to grow or to love more or to be more. And mm. I think Brene Brown has done a huge amount of work on shame and vulnerability for anyone who's listening and hasn't tapped into that resource. And, but yeah, I think that's fantastic. And the second question that I'd like to ask before we go is, do you have a quote that inspires you? Um, <laughs> no, not that I can think of. Um, I, I mean, I like often come across quotes and I'm like, oh, that's, that's really nice. But I don't, um, often engage with them further than the initial reading and then letting them like slip out my mind. Um, so I didn't want to say a quote that, um, wasn't necessarily something that I truly engage with. Um, <laughs> Though Mao Angelo, something I often think back to, I don't know if it was Maya Angelo said that um if there's a book you want to read and it hasn't been written, then you should write it. Something along those lines. Yeah. And that what was really nice because um like yeah. <laughs> I I think a lot of writers go through that or like if I'm going through something, I'm always looking for a book that like will pinpoint what I'm going through. It makes it easier to like, you know, understand myself and then I read stuff and I'm like, no, it's not right. That's really different to what I'm going through. <laughs> so yeah, I like that quote. So a follow-on from that would be, what would be something that you would like a book to be written on that you haven't seen on the shelves? Um, I so at the moment I'm living in a farm um with my father who has dementia and um it's like uh, he it's something I've been going through for the past few years but more so now and the kind of content that I've engaged with that deals with dementia I feel like is often kind of wishy-washy uh you know it's like all about forgetting maybe I haven't read enough books (laughs) it's like it focuses so much on the memory aspect and I think that dementia is so much more than memory it's also personality changes and like a whole relationship dynamic changing um so yeah that's something that I've been looking at recently I I know what you mean is my grandmother had dementia and it was really um difficult to observe both the changes in her grasp on the past and the present but also in her personality and she was a very I mean she was always a bit of a sharp woman but (laughs) she became particularly tough at the end towards the end of her life she died when she was in in her late 80s so she had a very long life and it was so amazing to observe her becoming someone else and to try and hold on to both versions of that person they're witnessing and caring for them and so I'm sending you a lot of strength in that journey and hopefully someone listening will recommend a book that might be more helpful to you thank you for sharing that with us thank you (laughs) And, and my final question is do you have any advice for any other feminists on their journey yeah I think um it's so much of I think the biggest thing for my journey is trying to be authentic and vulnerable to myself um and that 
so much, you know, I think I mentioned Judy Bloom earlier, but also so much of it came through the friendships that I made, particularly in university, where I felt like they were often very vulnerable and that allowed me to be vulnerable. And that vulnerability, I think, is one of the most empowering things that I learned as a feminist, because um, not being vulnerable meant that I kind of had that shame around my identity, whether, I mean, I'm not, I'm just talking about small things, you know, like, maybe I like and that need to kind of conform and cover up it felt it felt like sort of an extra burden and by being vulnerable I always I feel like um have more power you know it's like I think that with without it other people have power over the things that I um identify as and I know vulnerability is harder in certain spaces you know by being around people who accept you and um will you know and I'm speaking as like a cis white woman so like um it's an easier space for me to be in and I think like the myriad of identities and experiences which shape who who we are though probably will resonate with someone out there so yeah and I mean as writers we write about that vulnerability often but I don't think you just need to write about it I think even if you're just sharing it with a friend or a peer it can help someone else I don't know if I think if you tell honest stories people will be able to hear that and be able to relate to some element of it I think that's the joy of reading right is it expands our ability to feel empathy for people who may be like us or who may not be like us yeah. So I think yeah, the writing and the vulnerability work tie very nicely together. Good job <laughs> on finding a career that suits your your preferences. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I mean, but it's not always easy work, right? And I think that's something that yeah. you you've talked about is that it is a a thing of growth. It is something that we have to all go through is working out where our lines in the sand are and who we can be open with safely. Um, and who can be open to us. So I think very good advice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for still providing such honest and beautiful answers. I really appreciate your time and, yeah, and your you. contribution to the book. Thank you. And thank you for having me. so much for tuning into this week's episode of living while feminist with me jen thorpe please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences take care of yourselves